0: Good morning, my name is Sarah Levanos and I will be reading our scripture passage today. Um, today's scripture reading is found in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 and if you are using one of the Black Pew Bibles this is found on page 1001 and if you do not have a Bible of your own or you know someone who needs a Bible please feel free to take one of our Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, our scripture reading is Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, and please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things the word of the lord
1: well we're starting as Andy said we're starting a new series today we're going to be in the book of hebrews for uh, this fall and winter it's really going to take us all the way to easter we'll we'll take a break for advent and christmas but other than that this is going to be a longer series of sermons it's a longer book in the new testament and we'll work through it pretty much verse by verse i think that's my plan anyway so today we're starting. Uh, it's called Jesus is Better, and you've seen our graphics and banners and all that sorts of stuff to remind you what we'll be talking about today and throughout fall and winter. So my first question, how is this anonymous letter, so we don't know who wrote it. It's unusual for a New Testament letter. We don't know who wrote it. We have some ideas, but they're just guesses. How is this anonymous letter that's written almost 2,000 years ago to an obscure religious sect in a Roman city, we think, Roman city. How is that relevant to us today? I'm just going to ask the question that some of you must be thinking, right? Why are we here looking at this particular letter today? How is that relevant to us in our culture today? Well, as I've been thinking about that, preparing for this sermon series... I realized that the recipients of this letter actually lived in a situation that is remarkably similar to ours. It's remarkably similar to ours. And you're thinking, yeah, you're going to force some kind of analogy, some sort of connection to justify the sermon. No, let me make my case, okay? So so hear me on this. They lived in a pluralistic society, a a globalized society, with many worldviews, ethnicities, religions, practices, all being thrown together in this one culture, all held together by by the power of Rome, often in a very violent fashion. And all of them were trying to figure out what is true and what isn't. Many voices coming at you, right, politically, politically. Uh, in, in, in the culture, in the arts. Everybody's telling you what's true, and yet there's a multiplicity of opinions and voices. How do you even know what's true? They were asking the same questions we're asking today because today all these different voices are vying for our attention. We're hearing from all sorts of opinions, all sorts of worldviews, all sorts of religions, all sorts of practices, all of that is coming at us, and the question is how do you even know what to believe. Everybody seems to have an opinion, and everybody seems to have a strong opinion on all sorts of issues. And so all this information coming our way constantly, all these voices shouting and whispering and trying to convince us that what they're saying is, in fact, true. It's the most accurate opinion. It's the trustworthy news source. So how do you even know what to believe? I think this is very similar to the world to which the letter of Hebrews was written too. Again, urban, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a society that's pluralistic, it's a globalized multicultural society that we are living in today. Here's another similarity. Christians at the time that this letter was written were a marginalized group under constant pressure to conform and to adapt their faith to the prevailing values of their culture. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, They were persecuted. In fact, there was tremendous pressure on these Christians. Some of them were imprisoned, some of them died, some of them were martyred for the faith. There was tremendous pressure on them to return to the Jewish faith out of which Christianity came, and most of these people are Jewish believers. And the reason they were tempted to go back to Judaism because Judaism was established and accepted in the Roman Empire. So if you were a practicing Jew, you could freely practice your faith, and the government wouldn't do anything to stop you. If you were a Christian, you would have had to do that secretly, constantly trying to be careful, constantly being challenged by the culture and even by your government. Now, I would not be using words like persecution for us today here, I don't think it's fair to the people that are actually being persecuted in many other parts of the world for their faith. But it is certainly true that Christians are being marginalized and pushed further and further into the margins of our society. And so to avoid that marginalization, many believers today abandon historic Christian beliefs and accept the values of our culture that makes their lives much easier. Those who continue to hold on to the biblical teachings find that their lives are becoming increasingly more and more difficult. Very similar to the world of Hebrews. We're dealing with the same tensions, the same temptations today. And so into this kind of world, our world, our culture, the writer of Hebrews sends a very clear and powerful message, and that is that Jesus is better. Very simple. Jesus is better. This word better comes uh, come up again and again in this, in this letter. He's simply better. Whatever you will abandon him for is not going to be as good as he is. That's the message. Whatever the temptation is, whatever voices that you're listening to, whatever opinions you, you're, you're pulled to accept, whatever cultural pressure you're experiencing today, the message of Hebrews and my message this morning is that Jesus is simply better And to abandon him and to deny him would be an unwise choice. That's the letter of Hebrews, and we'll we'll work through it, and we'll see how Jesus is compared to all sorts of things throughout the letter. And many of them are going to be very relevant to us this morning. And so that's what we'll be talking about this fall and winter. This is intensely relevant and profoundly important, I believe, and I'll hope to show it to you as we go through this epistle. All right, let me spend about five minutes on just walking you through our text before we start making applications to our lives, okay? This is my five-minute exposition. So if you want to get your Bibles open, this is Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. This is all one sentence in Greek, um, and often you see this in Scripture. The writers get so excited about sharing information that they just don't know when to stop. It's just They just keep going, and, and it's another clause and another clause, and then finally they just kind of leave it, and move on to to something else. So that's what we have here. This is a a full, uh, very dense, meaningful passage. So long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in the past, and this is primarily referring to the Old Testament, we're in the New Testament after Christ came, and so the writer here is talking about the Old Testament that many In many ways, in many different ways, and at many times, God spoke to our fathers, to their ancestors, to people from the Old Testament, to God's people. And he spoke in many different ways. It's if he spoke in fragments, different pieces of information, and he spoke by the prophets. Those are people like Moses or Elijah or even Abraham would be put in that category. Anybody who spoke on behalf of God and received some sort of revelation from him. And God spoke in different ways. He spoke in visions and in dreams and written messages, angelic pronouncements, and all sorts of things that God used to speak His truth, His information to His people. By the way, in this first verse, there is a delightful alliteration in Greek. Uh, so whenever I alliterate my, my sermon series outline or s- sermon outline, Please know that this is biblical. I'm simply following the example of, of Hebrews here. There's a lot of Ps in this first verse here. Verse 2, in these last days, so this is contrast, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So now, in our era, in the era of Hebrews, and it's our era, the last days includes anything that happened after Christ, this is the time of fulfillment, and it's a time of complete revelation from God. So before, God spoke in different ways, through different messengers, in partial revelation, but now He speaks in one way, through one messenger, and He gives us His complete and final word in Christ. There is nothing else for God to say, is the point. He has spoken anything, everything that He wanted us to know in Jesus This is a complete and final revelation from God. And our question would be, what is this revelation? And there are six statements about Jesus. Now, we'll look at them in more detail as we go on, but I'll just simply list them. There are six statements about who Jesus is and how God communicates through him to us. They're carefully arranged, and I'll mention that a little bit later. So please remember, there's an arrangement of these statements that is important here but let me just list them. Number one, Jesus was appointed to be the heir of all things. This God-man Jesus has been recognized by God as the king of all things. He rules. He's been appointed an heir of all things. Number two, through Jesus, God created the world. So Jesus is the creator. He is the one who created everything. Number three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Through Jesus, God's glory shines. He is the medium for God's revelation of Himself to the world. Number four, He is the exact imprint of His nature. In other words, Jesus perfectly represents the nature of God because He Himself shares that nature. To know the Son is to know the Father. Number five, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Not only did Jesus create the world, he is the one that holds everything together. Number six, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. By his death, Jesus brought a perfect sacrifice that removed the guilt of sin and restored his reign again. He rose from death and ascended to assume this position of authority and power at the right hand of God. He's God's right hand man. There's finality because he sat down. So he did everything that needed to be done to restore his rule and to free us from sin, and he's now sitting down at the right hand of God. The work of salvation from sin is finished. Those are the six statements about Jesus. And then verse 4 gets us kind of in the next section of the of the letter that we'll be dealing with next week and talks about Jesus being superior to angels and we'll work through it next week. Okay, that's our text. And now our task is how do we apply it? How do we work through it so it becomes relevant to us today? Here's how I'd like to approach our text and I will alliterate today. I would like us to look at this definitive word from God in Jesus in three aspects. I'd like us to look at it as a story Number one. Secondly, as a scene, as if in a theater play, as a scene in a play. And finally, as a song. It's a story, a scene, and a song. Let's begin with the story. These few verses, I mean, there's four verses here, one sentence, and yet the writer of Hebrews is able to show us in, in this brief passage how God's revelation in Jesus provides us with a complete, cohesive, comprehensive worldview. In these few verses, we have all we need to answer all our existential questions. It is remarkable that somebody could write this. Of course, we know God had something to do with this. We read these verses, and we can get answers to all of the important questions that have to do with our existence. In other words, in Jesus, God tells us a story that explains everything. Now, to make sense of the world, we all answer the following questions. I have five. There's many ways to approach it. There's philosophers break it down in different ways, but I think it's fair to at least mention these five fundamental questions. One has to do with knowledge. How can I know anything? What is real? That's the question. Secondly, question of identity. I'll, I'll work through these if you're taking notes. Who am I? Where did I come from? That's identity. Thirdly, authority. Who is in charge? Who determines right and wrong? Fourthly, suffering. What's wrong? What's wrong with this? How can it be fixed? And finally, destiny. What is going to happen to me? So knowledge identity, authority, suffering, and destiny. And in Jesus, God answers all those questions sufficiently and fully to our satisfaction. I'll give you some, some hints. I'm not going to get into too much of this. We simply don't have time, but I'll, I'll give you some pointers how to work through these. Knowledge, number one, knowledge. Now begin the sermon with the description of our world as a, a multitude of voices vying for our attention and trying to convince us that what they're saying is true. How do you know what's true is the question. How do you know what's really real? I think it's always been that way. I think we've always had a multitude of voices. Even in the garden, there's the serpent speaking to Adam and Eve and contradicting God. So I think that's part of the human condition. But especially recently, it seems like there's been a lot of conversation about who to trust, which sources to listen to. A lot of conversation about fake news, right? Alternative facts. We have learned that public opinion is, is swayed by internet trolls, whoever they are. The, the meme makers seem to have an inordinate influence on how we vote, turns out. Who knew? We, we have learned that search engines, in the way they deliver information to you, actually can form and shape your opinion of those things. Right? When you search for something, what comes up first kind of matters. We've learned that social media sites, by filtering information that gets to you, again, get to influence what you think and how you process information, how you do research. Most of us have made a decision already which news sources to trust and what to watch, what to listen to, and yet... I'll just speak for myself. Maybe many of you will agree with me. There's a deep suspicion that even if you've chosen something you think is trustworthy, there's a deep suspicion that they are deliberately demonizing the other side and are arranging their news in such a way as to show that the other side is wrong. It seems like the major agenda is to actually prove that the other side is, is wrong. There's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of interpretation that is done from a particular point of view. Information is presented to support an agenda. So how do we know what's true? If you're just in the world, you're part of this culture, how do you even know what to believe? There are conflicting news stories. One story says, this is what happened, and then you flip your channel and go to something else, and they're saying, no, 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 this is, this is not what happened exactly, this is, this is what happened. And it's totally different. The facts are just totally different. How do you deal with that? How do you work through that? How do you know what's real? Now, let's dream a little bit. What if, what if there was a person who was able to have an objective perception of reality? Now, we're all subjective. None of us can see reality for what it is. We're all bringing our biases and our baggage into it. But what if there existed a person that had an objective view of reality? What if that person was incredibly honest and had no reason to hide any piece of information from us? And what if that same person was incredibly loving and wanted to tell us what we need to know? What if that person existed? And what if that person decided to tell us the way reality really is, and describe to us what really is happening, and we could trust Him. Then we would know what reality is. Then we could say, this is the voice I'm going to listen to. And of course, the point of this passage is exactly that, that there is such a person. And that person has been speaking to us in many ways, in different ways, through the prophets, but now this person has decided to give us a complete comprehensive revelation of what's going on through his son Jesus. This is the message. With all the voices that are vying for your attention, there's one voice, the only voice that has an objective view of reality that's not attached to anything, that's not influenced by anything. And this person is honestly telling us what is happening And he does it because he loves us and he wants us to know and live well. That's the revelation of God through Christ. We know what's really real because somebody who, the only person who understands what really real is, is telling us what it is. That's the voice we can listen to, claims the Christian Bible. Second issue of identity. That's those, those all pieces of the worldview that we must have. Anybody, anybody, everybody answers these questions in a certain way. This is the Bible's answer to it. Identity. Who am I? Where did I come from? We're told that we have been created by a personal being named Jesus. We came from the good design of God. That means my identity is not self-created. It's not self-selected. I don't get to determine who I am. I'm simply accepting the way God sees me because he created me. I don't get to define who I am. I can simply accept whether I I am the way God made me or I'm going to create my own identity that is going to be eventually and ultimately it's going to be false. (laughs) By the way, this point, this part of the world, has far-reaching implications for all sorts of issues. If I don't get to determine who I am and what my identity is, That affects all sorts of issues in my life. Sexuality, absolutely. Gender, absolutely. Marriage, yes. Finances, friendships, how I treat others. If I am created in God's image and so are other people, that affects how I treat other people. Thirdly, authority. The question is, who is in charge? It's a major worldview question. Who is in charge? Verse 2. But in these last days... God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There is a king, the Bible tells us. There is an heir of all things, somebody who has been appointed in position to a position of authority. His name is Jesus. He gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. He has absolute authority by virtue of being the world's creator and also the world's redeemer. That means that we are all accountable to him for how we live, what we think, what we feel, how we treat his creation, including other people. All of us are accountable to him because he is simply the king. He determines right and wrong. Next is suffering. If This is a good design, and God rules. Why is it that we're hurting? Why is it that there's so much dysfunction in this world? Why is there suffering and pain and evil? What can be done about it? Verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sin is what's wrong with the world. The world went wrong when we rejected God's rule as our creator. We rejected his definition of right and wrong. We have redefined our identities. And we have decided that we will determine what's good and what's evil, placed ourselves in the place of God, and now there's suffering and pain and evil. But God decided to save this world and restore the balance by taking on himself the guilt of the world and offering a new life to us. That's the purification for sins. So there's an acknowledgement that sin is what's wrong with the world, but there's also hope that God is, going, is doing something about it, that Jesus came to purify this world of sin, to purify us of sin, and now he is sitting down at the right hand, having accomplished that work, awaiting the final restoration of creation. This answers major questions. For anybody. What's wrong with this world? Sin. How is God going to deal with that? He's going to redeem the world through Christ. And finally, destiny. What is going to happen to me? Verse 3. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The idea here is that the world is not only held together by Christ, so it doesn't fall back into nothingness and chaos, but that there is a guiding force here, that Jesus is pushing this world forward to its desired destiny, that Jesus is carries it forward, guides it to the good resolution, being reconciled to God through Christ. At some point, everyone will accept Christ's rule, either in being judged and punished for our sins or in being accepted into his restored kingdom, and then everything will be completely restored. That's the destiny. That's what's going to happen. We have to determine which side we're on, but that's what's going to happen. We know the answer to that question. This is the story. In these few verses, God is telling us in Christ, this is all you need to know to understand the world, to understand who you are, to understand me. This is a complete worldview, and you can build on this. You can make decisions on that, you can figure out relationships on this. You can decide on a career based on this. This affects very much how you live. The, the problem is, as, as many sociologists have been pointing out in the last probably 10, 15 years, is that kids who are coming out of churches, who have grown up in Christian churches and Christian homes, are coming out without this worldview. Now, they got bits and pieces, and it's as if God communicated to them in many ways and at different times. But they don't leave the church with this complete, comprehensive, cohesive worldview that Scripture gives us very clearly. And that means that they will not make decisions that are right. They will not see themselves as God sees them. They will not go to the solutions that God offers to them, and they will be uncertain about destiny. I think this is a major problem in the church, a major problem. When we teach, when we raise our own children and help other children grow, we have to give them these pieces. They need to be able to articulate this. When you ask them, who are you? They should be able to say, I'm created in God's image, which means I have intrinsic value. God loves me but I'm also a sinner, which means I need his grace to change. Kids should be able to articulate that. When you ask them, how do you know what's real? They should be able to say, because God tells me what's real, and he knows what's real. There's a complete revelation from God that is in Jesus. If our kids can't articulate that, that means they don't believe it. If they don't believe it, their lives are not going to be built on this. And of course, of course, they're going to go where the culture takes them because the culture is a tremendous influence and the culture shapes their worldview if we don't. The question for all of us today, kids, teens, adults, all of us, the question is, do we accept this story as a worldview-defining story? The story of creation and fall and come in redemption in Christ, and his death and resurrection, his ascension to be at the right hand of the Father, his intercession for us, the promise of his return and restoration. Do we accept that story as a worldview-defining story where we can say, I will build on this. When I make my decisions, I will make my decisions on this basis. So when I have an ethical dilemma, I know how to process that because I have a framework in which I can process it. You see, what we've done in the church, and and we're just as guilty as anybody else. Please don't, don't, don't listen to me as if Chatham is completely different from that. Yeah, maybe we've done better. I don't know, but we have the same issues. What we've done is we've addressed issues. When an issue comes up, we say, okay, this is what you're supposed to believe about this. This is how you're supposed to act about this. What we have failed to do in many cases with our kids, if we haven't given them a framework on which they can hang those decisions. And so those decisions become completely isolated and forced. They don't know how they connect to others. What I'm really excited about our youth ministry is that Pastor Josh actually does what I'm talking about here. He talks to the kids about the glory of God. Does it attract children uh, as much as Nerf wars do? I don't think so. Until they get it, until they get what the glory of God is, and then it does attract them, of course. They become transformed. They start living for the glory of God. But this is what's happening in our children's ministry now, in in our youth ministry now. This is the focus. And that's always been the plan. We've always tried to do that. But we see these realizations. We we come up against these, these revelations. We're saying... Man, our kids are struggling. Why? Because we need to give them a framework. That's one of the solutions. Do you accept this story as true? My challenge, and again, this is not just for kids or teens, it's for all of us. Many of the adults are not living in this worldview either. My challenge is for you and for me to put this to the test and to live consistently with this worldview our view of knowledge and authority and identity and suffering and destiny and see if it works see if it fits the reality we live in i think it does very well now from the world of literature and stories to the world of theater maybe i get a couple people who get excited about theater maybe we can look at this revelation as a story we can also look at it as a as a play as a drama A little bit of comedy thrown in here as well. There's one particular scene in this drama, in this performance, that is unusually striking. Now, I need to explain how I get there a little bit. I told you that these six statements about Jesus are arranged in a certain way. And I'm sorry I'm going to get a little technical, but hopefully it's going to make sense. It's what they call a chiasm. A chiasm is a certain structure used in in writing, And the way the writer of Hebrews writes it, he structures these statements in a certain way. So imagine a a V on its side, a letter V on its side. You have statements that correspond to each other, and eventually leading all to the two statements at the center. So if you look at your text, even, you can do that. For example, we have, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That corresponds to, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So similar things. So, um, I'm sorry, that corresponds to making purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So authority here, authority in the other verse. Next pair would be, through whom also he created the world, creation. Corresponds to, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Similar thoughts. And then finally, it gets to these two thoughts in the middle. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, this is at the tip of the sideways V. So as you work through it, what happens is you read a verse here, and then you read verse here, 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 and here. These correspond, these correspond, but these are the most important. The reason it's at the center is because in the structure, that is the most important, the crucial truth that the author is trying to communicate. Now, you see that, by the way, very frequently in Scripture. You, you can see it in Lamentations. Lamentations is the whole, the whole book as a chiasm, if, if you look through it. And in the middle is Revelations, uh, I'm sorry, Lamentations 3, right? His mercies never fail, they're new every morning. That's the center of the book. Now, the center here is Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact Imprint of his nature. Yes, he's the creator. Yes, he's the king. But the most important thing about him that God is communicating to us in this final revelation from him is that he is God himself. The most important truth that comes in through this revelation is that Jesus is God himself, he is the radiance of God's glory. Through him, through Christ, the glorious light of God shines to us. This is how God comes to us. How his glory gets to us is through Jesus, because he is God, and He his glory shines in us. He's the exact expression of God's essence. He's the imprint of God's nature, meaning that Jesus is is God, and his nature is communicated to us through the incarnation, through him becoming man, we know what God is like. Whatever makes God God, Jesus has in himself. Now, let me give you an analogy, why this is so important in this passage and in this revelation. Maybe you've read books by a certain author, or maybe you've watched movies with a certain actor or a certain director, and you might feel like you know quite a bit about them. you. you, you now you start to pick up on their preferences. And if you're watching a movie, you're like, I bet you that scene is going to be set there. I bet you there's a Christmas dinner scene that's coming up because almost in every movie he does that. You start anticipating their character, their personality, how they do things. In a book, you will read a novel uh, or several novels by the same author, and when you get a new one, you're like, okay, that, that just feels like It just feels like that author. And you start uh, start connecting the dots, and you start saying, oh, that that character is very interesting. I wonder if that's based on a real-life person that author knows, because you've read the memoir, and you know what happened. And you start connecting those dots. Now, you know the person a little bit. You have familiarity with them. But then, then, in an airport, randomly, you see them, and you get to talk to them and you say, now, hmm, now I really know them because I've seen them, I've heard them speak, I've shaken their hand, I know what they look like, I know what they sound like. Now everything can be put together. The best way to get to know someone is to be with them. If you want to know about me, talk with me. You will get to know me that way. That's the best way to get to know me. That's the best way to get to know anybody. This is the idea. In many ways, and through different prophets, and in many different times, God spoke to us, but it was all in fragments. But now, God is speaking to us through His Son, meaning that God came to us Himself. God, in His desire to communicate who He is to us, is not content to write letters. Even this book is not enough for him. He's going to show up himself, and he's going to say, here I am. Know me. You, you watch, if you watch the news, it's, it's a frequent segment. A soldier is coming back from war, and there's that, that tearful, exciting meeting at the airport, right? The children are there. The wife is there and he comes in their tears and their embraces very very touching every time you watch that it's very touching they've heard from him over the months they've gotten texts and emails they've talked to him on Skype they heard things on the news that were happening where he was stationed but it is totally different from seeing him and touching him and being with him this is the idea here god says i've talked to you in different ways and i've sent you messages and I've sent you people who spoke on my behalf, but now I am coming to you. Now you can know me because I am here with you in Jesus. This is why when Peter writes his letter, he says, I'm going to tell you about something that that we have have seen, we've touched. John says the same thing in 1 John. This is something we have experienced. This is personal. It's relational. Now, as much as... You know, I talked about the worldview being important, and I think it's, it's tremendously important to teach those aspects of putting things together so you can have a full view of reality from God's perspective. And yet, at the same time, Christianity ultimately is not about a set of propositions to be believed. It's not really about that. Those are helpful. But Christianity is not ultimately about a worldview. Christianity is ultimately about a God who loves you. A God who loves you and who came to express that love for you. That's the gospel. God says, I'm going to tell you about me. We're going to tell you about me through me coming to you. And so Jesus comes and lives among us, and we can see his glory. He is the glory, the radiance of God's glory. We see it. He's been here. He knows us on a personal relational level. Jesus came. Jesus wants to be with you. He wants a relationship. He loves you. He died because he loves you. He rose again so that you can love him too. He's at the right hand of the Father making sure that you never lose his love. That is why he is interceding for you and ruling over the church so that you would never lose his love. He will make sure that he will always, always love you. He sat down because his work of removing any barrier to his love has been done. It's complete. And he has promised to return so you can be with him forever. That's the scene. That's the scene in that play when Jesus shows up. And then there's curtain. There's nothing else to be said. He's here. He loves you. The question for us is, have you experienced it yourself? No further revelation is necessary. God has told us everything we need to know in Jesus. The question is, have you met him? Have you met him? Unless you think it's less personal now that Jesus has ascended, he sent someone in his place. He said, I will send a helper like me, and through this helper, through the Holy Spirit, you will know me. You will remember my words. You will do my works. You will be in fellowship with me. You can abide in Jesus through the Holy Spirit today. You can have this personal relationship with him in which you can say, I know God because he is here with me. And you can say it confidently because it's real through the Holy Spirit. Have you met him? Have you experienced that scene in that play where it absolutely surprises you and shocks you that Jesus shows up because he loves you? And finally, and briefly, we have one more genre to work through. This is not just a story or a scene in a play. It is also a song. So from literature to theater to music. Some scholars believe that the writer here in Hebrews is quoting from a well-known hymn, presumably a hymn that the church sang at the time, that the Hebrews, the recipients of this letter, knew and so, when he says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, that's a song, that's a hymn he's quoting. Even if it's not a hymn, because we can't totally be sure, it certainly feels like a poem, it certainly feels like a song. It is poetic, it is rhythmic, it touches you on a different level than just communicating data and information. Actually, it's pretty common for a writer in the Bible to break into a song. Paul does it all the time. We have major portions of Scripture that are poetry. Many people don't know what to do with it because it doesn't read like other things. It doesn't read like the law. It doesn't read like, like narrative, like a historic book. It reads very differently, but it's on purpose. There's a reason why there's so much poetry and singing in the Bible. I was was reading Psalm 100 uh, this morning and the command is come into his presence with singing. It must be important to God that he gives us so much poetry and that he expects us to sing in his presence. This is why it's important. It's not enough just to work through the worldview questions and say, I believe this, and I will live on its basis. It's not enough. It's not enough even just to know that God sent Jesus and that He showed up to us. What really needs to happen, and for us to know that we really met Jesus, that we really have the Holy Spirit, that we're really experiencing God the way we were meant to experience Him, the question is going to be have we heard His song and have we responded in singing to that? That's the question. This is why we sing every Sunday. It's not because we want a little more variety in the service and have nothing else to do. That's because it's a natural response. When we hear God's song, like here, God is singing to us and he's saying, this son is a radiance of my glory. He is the exact imprint of my nature. Honor him, accept him, welcome him, love him. That's a song. When God creates, when God works, God sings. And for us to know that we really heard that song, we'll know that by us returning our song to him. When, when my children were little, I, I don't know if I've, I've used this illustration before. It's, it's vivid in my mind. When we lived in Ukraine and, and my children, so we had the two older ones, Elena and Zoya, and, and they were probably four or five, somewhere in that range. And, and we would often get a DVD of, of the newest animated movie that came out, and would watch it together as a family, and they loved it, and it gave us time to, uh, actually for them to be quiet a little bit, and, and we enjoyed many of those movies ourselves, turns out, not just made for kids. Uh, and so I remember every time the movie would end, and often in those movies when end credits start, start to roll, right, there's a song. <laughs> and my kids would, every time, they would just jump up and start dancing and singing. I remember one particular movie, Robots. Anybody seen Robots? There's a song at the end. It's a great song. It's a James Brown song. Get up off of that thing, if you know the song. (laughs) I'll mention specifically. And when that song plays, my my kids, they just cannot stay sitting down. And these these two little, you know, adorable toddlers, you know, and they're just dancing. There's just that, that free expression of joy. Why? Why is that? God placed it in our hearts to react to good news, to good things, with singing and dancing. And so the response to this text is not just to say, hmm, it's very interesting. <laughs> I'm going to ponder that later today. The response to this is singing and rejoicing and saying God has done something amazing. He sent his own son to tell us exactly what what the reality is like, what he's done for us, how he saved us, how he means to bless us that there's a greater restoration that is, is still coming. And as he did that, we respond in singing and rejoicing. Uh, I don't know if you like musicals. I used to not like musicals at all. I just couldn't understand the concept. And that probably speaks to my own emotional limitations. (laughs) And then I married Jillian, who loves musicals and sings. And then my children, all of them love to sing and dance and are involved in all sorts of plays and musicals and all that kind of stuff. And I've realized that if I really like a musical, you can say, what's your favorite musical? If I really like it, I know that I like it because I, I hum the songs. It just randomly would come up. And I'd be driving around and I would hum the song. I don't know any of the words. I'm just terrible at memorizing things. But I would hum the tune. That says that that musical did something in my heart. It affected me somehow. How much more should the gospel affect us as believers? If it doesn't make you sing in whatever way, if it doesn't make you move, it hasn't really gotten to the core of who you are. It may have transformed your worldview, but it hasn't transformed your heart yet. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray, and we're going to come to the table. And this is a way for us to celebrate. This is a way for us to remember what Jesus has done for us, to remember that there is that final word that was spoken by God to us in Christ, and that all all the questions that we have are answered at this table through Christ. We remind ourselves of that. But we come rejoicing and we come singing and we get to celebrate what God has said and done for us in Jesus. If you, if you are a believer, you're a follower of Christ, you are welcome at this table. You don't have to be part of our church. Feel free to come and, and take the, the bread and the cup and celebrate with us. If you're not a follower of Christ, don't just go through the motions. I pray that today you will embrace him, that he will make your heart sing today and that you will respond in song of faith to him even this morning. Uh, If you uh, are unable to make your way up front, we would love to bring communion to you. So if you're new here and you can't make it physically down there, uh, down here, please just raise your hand and one of our elders will bring communion to you. If you're out in the balconies, you don't have to come down. There are tables set up for you there. You can just move forward as you are. And as you sing and celebrate, we will share in this feast together. Let me pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who speaks. You are a God who reveals himself. You are a God who saves. And that in Jesus, you have spoken to us and you have given us everything we need to know and to experience to live the kind of life you want for us. I'm grateful that in Christ, all of our existential questions have been answered. We know who we are in Christ. We know why you made us and what you have in store for us. We know where authority lies and who is in charge. We know how we can know things because you speak to us. All those things have been made available to us freely by grace through Christ. We don't deserve any of this. And yet, through your Spirit, you communicate these truths, these experiences to us, not just to our minds, but even into our hearts. Where we are grateful for Jesus for what he's done for us. That he, being God, God of God, light of light, the same in nature as you and the Spirit, nonetheless became human and added that second nature to his person. And by all accounts, will always have that nature, will always be that close to us. Thank you for his life where he lived completely in accordance with your view of reality, perfectly obeying you. Thank you for his suffering and death on our behalf. Though he was innocent, he died for us, brought a sacrifice to you, the only sacrifice that would appease your wrath, would give us hope, would remove our guilt. Thank you for his resurrection that in his resurrection, there's a proclamation of victory over sin, Satan, the world, and the flesh, and an offer of a new life. We can live differently because he rose again. Give us that power, Lord, to live consistently with your revelation of yourself in Christ. Thank you for his ascension, that he is now sitting at the right hand of you and is interceding for us and ruling over his church. and working towards bringing a complete rule of God into his creation. We are grateful that our hope is secure, that we know that creation will be restored, and that by grace, we, those who believe, will be welcomed at his table, even as we are welcomed at this table now. Thank you for this reminder of the gospel. Let us take it seriously, but let us take it joyfully. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's do it together.